Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello. Hey there. How are you doing? I'm I'm a little underwater. Um, <laughs> you're busy, busy, busy. Yeah. I can't keep up with my email. There's too much to do. There's fires to put out. It's just, you know, same old, same old. Book edits. Oh, the damn book edits. You're Amber, how was that? Did, did you have fun book editing, Amber? It was so fun. You love the Oxford comma, don't you? All of the Oxford this is, this is, this is, commas and the N rules and the M rules. Or the M dash. Uh, it was a joy. Kara oh. loves an M dash. I love, I do love an M dash. And you're adding You've made me more. do it too. I I'm do. like all I, about the M dashes now. I'm, it's catching. It's, know. you know, you can't help it. And it seems the publishers love the M dash because they add more M dashes. They're like, what about an M dash? I'm like, what about it? Let's do it. But the Oxford comma is the bane of my existence because Americans don't use the Oxford comma, uh-huh. hence the phrase Oxford comma. And and so when I write with the Oxford comma, Nat Geo books will take it out. Crown will take it uh, out. So I've just stopped writing with the Oxford comma. And now AUC Press wants me to put all the damn Oxford commas back in, which I will up to a point. Sometimes I'm I protest. <laughs> and so I will not I will not do it. But it depends on the context. So lots of Oxford commas going back in there. Almost, almost there. Last. Almost. What page are we on, Amber? Well, we're only in chapter two of seven and we're on like page 58 of chapter two. Yes. But it was, it was going quickly, actually, which is the sad thing. It's a big book. It's a big mother effing book (laughs) and we will... We will do our best. We ha- we're meeting again. When are we meeting next? Tomorrow? Tomorrow, Day- yes. Tomorrow. And then I think we'll need another two, maybe one. Let's see how fast we can book it and get through all these edits. And then I think they want to go through it again. <laughs> God's help me. No. So no. it just never ends. It's just the coffin book that will never be published. But it's beautiful thing in academic publishing. And this is a shout out to AUC Press. You guys rock. It's an it's an unusual thing in academic publishing to have somebody go through and do a close reading of your text and to catch little oh, things yeah. and to catch the way something reads and to say, well, that's not really clear. What did you mean? And I'm like, oh, shit, it's not clear. I should clarify it. And most academic publishers don't have the time to do this. And then the book costs $300. This book will cost, what is it, $125 or something like that? It's it's $125. Which is amaze balls way more reasonable yeah for a book that's gonna it's now nearing 500 pages and all color pictures throughout almost a thousand images as i keep saying but like you know this is just the albatross that is still around my neck still there it's still there when when i release it is when i hold this book in my arms i feel (laughs) baby but even then since it's an ebook there will always be things that i'll be like damn it i got that wrong and then i can fix it in the ebook because i feel the ebook will live on um as well yeah so yeah everyone loves to get an ebook you can search control f look well, and for all these and... images you'll be able to mm-hmm. make it bigger so putting that on a tablet and then and then making enlarging in. the picture yeah. yeah i think it'll be really it'll be super useful and our our quality of photo is good mm-hmm. so you'll be able to zoom in and see a lot of detail that you didn't 
expect to be able mm-hmm. to see. So um, this is this is the hope, at least, because these coffins are really off off of public. Well, they're not they're in public view, but because they're in such public view at the NEMEC, most of them, they're now not. It's not possible to study them very easily. Well, so they haven't I'm, been published in this way. They have not. Ever. They have not. So, so, so that's you know we'll we'll get through it, and I we just carve out little moments of the day to work on edits and Oxford commas and clarifying meaning, and it's good. It's good. And goddamn bibliography, bibliography. <laughs> I saw um, like I saw earlier and went, like updated my Zotero after we talked. I was like, okay, I have to go through and like make sure my Zotero is really up to date, and it just takes so much time and. Uh, it really does. It really does. That's the boring the, part. The funniest problem that we have is that we used EndNote and EndNote then creates the bibliography automatically. And we just assume that EndNote was putting all the Coonies in a particular year, if there's more than one Cooney 2019 yeah. or 2018, that they were alphabetizing them by whatever it is that they're supposed to alphabetize them by. But EndNote did not do that. And so we had the Coonies of 2018. How many are there, Amber? Five articles or books or things? It's like or... A through E. Oh, wow. <laughs> And they weren't in alphabetical order, so that's mm-hmm. been corrected. And now Amber has like a rubric that Cooney A becomes Cooney D and Cooney C becomes Cooney A. And it, Oh, my it's, God. That's it's awful. a clusterfuck. It's horrible. So, yeah, so that's happening. But but it's OK. You know, it, it, as I try to tell my son, he's like, why do you even do this? This is stupid and boring. I say with every job. Every job, there are things that you don't want to do. And there are things that are awesome. And there is no job, no career, no life's path that has things that where everything is puppies and rainbows. There's always going to be some some difficult mountains tr- to traverse. Yeah, there's and always going to so be tasks Amber and, and Kylie and I. Yeah, yeah. we are all we're all traversing these mountains and at doing least, our best. As at we least can. you can laugh about it. So okay, we do. And. And, you know, pour wine if it's if the timing is appropriate. Yes. Pour wine while we are doing these things. So it's good. It's good. Good, good, good. good. Well, today we have our um, October supporter Q&A. And so we have some love of the Q&A. Yes. Always fun. Always unknown. Um, So let's just dive on in. Okay, so our first one comes from Abigail. Oh, and it's about clothing. So they have two Ooh, questions about yeah, clothing. I can, I can relax. I'm yes. going to go take a shower. You guys do, <laughs> and I'll get back. <laughs> so in tomb paintings, linen clothing is usually depicted as white and pleated. But did the ancient mm-hmm. Egyptians ever dye their clothing? And if so, with what and with which colors? Do we know if the pleating was deliberately ironed or if that's just a reflection of how linen naturally wrinkles? Great question. I'm so glad you're here. Jordan, I'm so glad you're here. So you you go. And for all of our listeners, Jordan is indeed writing her dissertation on yes. not just fabric and clothing, but on fashion and, fa- and identity and intersectional identity and gender and all of these things. So mm-hmm. take it. Yeah. So um, to answer your first question about dye, um, I think we have to remember in tomb scenes, we're seeing a very ideologically specific type of scenario. So I think it's often been compared to like, you know, someone's Sunday best, right? And so white has is very ideologically charged with like cleanliness and purity. And so in this religious space in the tomb, white's going to be the type of clothing shown. Um, but given that, it's still predominantly white or as white as you could get it, right? So the richer you are, the more white you can make your linen using 
natron and other um solvents salts um so like if you were lower status or poorer you would maybe have more a natural colored linen versus the richer you are you would have a bright white that's the aim is as for dyeing we do have some evidence for dye in small quantities like they're not going to be dyeing whole sheets of linen linen doesn't take dye well it requires an alum salt to get the dye to adhere to it and this wasn't practice at the time i don't know if they didn't know it or whatever but we don't have evidence for them aluming fasting the dye to to linen wool takes dye so much better you don't need an, a fast at all so you know this is the debate about the degree of which they were using wool in in lived reality versus these fairly specific tombs context we do see some linen where they have a little bit of blue striping like just at the border at the bottom near the fringe a little bit of color here or there blue is the main one sometimes they would dye sheets red which is also still like very ideologically charged as like a burial shroud and they look now more of like a pink color you told us once that pink is the color of mars because it was hard to get red in the ancient world and that that red is a light red which for mm-hmm. us is a pink yep. so wearing a pink tunic tunic is a mars god of power and violence mm-hmm. sort of look yeah. Seth sort of look can mm-hmm. even be a pink yeah. Well, we know like red, like um, Carrie's work was red being painted on coffins as a protective color. So red shrouds over your mummy. It makes perfect makes sense. sense. Yeah. yeah. That you would have the red seam of a coffin and you would also have anytime there's a, a join, you would paint mm-hmm. the red in, in the join and hide it when you attach the join. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, as for what plants they were using. So it's it's all natural plants um, for dyes, matter, woad. Um, things like that, different flowers for yellows if they're they're doing it. Um, but again, we don't have any evidence for any of this. This is just like things that existed that they could have used, um, but we don't have any dye, like archaeological evidence for dyeing vats like we do, say, in like the Roman Empire or things like that. Matter um, gets you red? Matter is a red, yeah. What do you get? What do you, because there's a lot of blue Woad striping. is a blue. Oh, Woad, okay. Um, Indigo is, so the only indigo that we have evidence for is Tut's blue kerchief that's in the net. Um, That's been tested and it's been proven to be indigotten, which would be coming from the Southeast Asian area. And it's Um, a flower? Indigo? Yeah. 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 It's a plant. I think a lot of times it's from the roots that they make like these bricks. Okay. Um, So maybe some trade, but again... The issue also is that a lot of there's been very little study looking into dyed linen fabrics um, and what they're made out of. In most cases, you have to do minor destructive processes. There has been some work. You can't get your you can't get your XRF out and shoot it at the garment. No, because it would just show as like carbon or maybe maybe. Uh, So if you're using like a red ochre, it would show as like having, you know, a metallic mineral. Yeah. You know, so if minerals, yes. But what has been done in Torino, for example, Matilda and Cinzia's work, um, there's different... Matilda, Matilda Borla and oh. Cinzia, Cinzia uh, Oliva. Yeah. Um, but they were working with different spectral imaging. So different waves of light that reflect in different ways. The, the, the dyes will reflect in different ways and will tell you then what dye was being used. That's a non-invasive way of looking into these things that you have to set out 
you have to get an IR camera and like all these other stuff. So you have to retrofit a camera to do that. Um, and this is also helpful too, where maybe the dye has degraded a bunch and you can't see it to the visible eye anymore, but it will still reflect in a way that the other spectrums of light might show you that it was dyed, but right. it's faded to the point. So that's what the, they have like a reddish shroud in Torino that they were able to prove was originally a much you know redder color from a I think an ochre actually in this case. I love a red shroud being the idea of don't pass. This is a mm-hmm. barrier protection. This is this is the limit. You can't remove it. The mummy needs to stay unassailable. It's it's just really cool. It's really cool. And in the pyramid texts and stuff, there's all these mentions of red linen, red fabrics um, playing a part in all the different spells and stuff. As for your second question about pleading. That's unclear. Um, again, Chinsia Oliva was working on seeing how they were getting the pleats to stick. Um, she had a really interesting kilt that was half pleated, half just nothing, um, just uh, straight. And um, she was investigating what additives were being added to like a starch or beeswax or something like this, what was being added to the linen to get the pleats to stay. Because when you, know, you say she had a cool linen garment, it's from the Museo Egizio, I assume. Yes, yeah, she was conserving yeah. it. So she was a conservation yeah. lab and yeah. um, she was conserving it. But then also her and Matilda were looking into how these pleats are done because they're perfect, right? It's not just wrinkle. No. Um, like, yes, linen does naturally wrinkle, but we have actual archaeological examples where the pleats are preserved and they're nice and pretty, like as if what we would do with an iron um, to get right. those nice pleats. Perhaps they used irons, right? Like you could heat up a rock and you'd press pleats into a garment. Um, other, there are these boards, they're called pleating boards that we have a couple examples for that have the pleats in it. And people think like you would put the linen in wet and then let it dry and it would dry with the pleats. You could also, you know, just as it's wet, since linen does take wrinkles very easily, you could lay out the pleats you know, maybe puts a weight to hold it there while it dries so you can lay. Um, but chintzias, what they were looking into is that there had to be something added to kind of keep the pleat. Um, we would use starch or something like that stay. So they were doing some chemical analyses. And I think last thing I heard, there was some beeswax evident and some uh, natron use, which is like a baking soda. So it does have that starch effect. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe... For the for the richer people, they would have been, and we do have a lot of evidence of laundering and stuff. So, you know, you would get your laundry sent out. So maybe these launderers would have been also employed, adding in these pleats and keeping everything looking nice and crisp and white and clean and pleated. And and you could twist things too, right? And if it's like a gauzy fabric, uh-huh. you could twist it. Then maybe put a setting in like a beeswax or something that would have that. Crimped. What do we call it? It's like when you buy something like that. There's a word. Yeah, the crimp. I think. It's, yeah. Yeah. Crepe, I, like a crepey sort yes. of yeah. fabric. Yeah. So yeah. So that's like the two arguments is that sometimes artistic depictions are very perfect, and so again, yeah, maybe it's more if you take linen when it's wet and you twist it and you see this in tomb depictions from laundry scene. They have the linen like twisted into like a knot, and so if they're letting it right. dry like that, as they unfolded it, it would like accordion. You know, and so maybe that's what it's meant to be showing or maybe for the king and like the super elites, they're actually getting these like perfect pleats done. So there might be 
both kind going. of like you would do your hair, you know, have your mm-hmm. hair in these complicated curls of echelons of curls. Exactly. Um, where you have to get out your little curling iron and mm-hmm. look great. Your tiny so you little. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, but great questions, things I'm happy to answer. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I always love the differenti- differentiation between wool and linen socially because the Egyptians were differentiating themselves from the rest of the ancient Near East mm-hmm. and Mediterranean by saying, no, no, you with your coat of many colors, that's my shout out to the, to the Joseph story mm-hmm. um, in Exodus, right, I think. Um, Amber, Amber, channel your Christian background. I think so. So don't um, ask but, me. But, you know, that, that, the, but that coat of many colors, right, the, because the wool takes the dye so easily. You have all of these different peoples, whether they be Libyans or Minoans or mm-hmm. Near Easterners from West Asia, someplace Syrians. They have these bright garments. And the Egyptians are like, no, mm-hmm. we are different. Linen grows here and we are we are of this, this um, smooth, clean whiteness. And then I also think of the difference. And I, I don't know if this is absolutely accurate, what I'm about to say, but since they had so much natron, they could clean the clothing using this salt and didn't have to collect the animal urine like they did in mm-hmm. Rome and other parts of the ancient world. So you didn't, the, the fuller is using a salt in, mm-hmm. as a solvent instead of a, a urine with the urea mm-hmm. um, as a solvent. And maybe the job was a little less horrible. <laughs> little, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's like, I know too, yeah. if you leave, um, like if you use natron, and then leaves that garment out in the sun, like the sun bleaches it with the with the additive of natron and stuff. So then you get this like super bright white. So yeah, super the Egyptians cool. were walking around in like nice, really clean clothes. And and that's when you see what they depict, you know, foreigners with their woolen garments. They're always so colorful and very stark difference between the two, for sure. Yeah. And this is an othering. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's beautiful. And the Egyptians thought these colorful garments were beautiful. And yet at the same time, they're like, but they are not us. We might wear some of these things sometimes, but they don't ever show themselves in their tombs wearing not their things. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. We're on Stila. So the, mo- the most you'll get, I suppose, is when you put, the most color you'll get is when you have a garment that's full of resin, that's impregnated with a resinous mm-hmm. or fatty substance. And the garment is stained a yep. pinkish, sort of red um, or a yellowish sort of red. And that's often been painted on in the tomb wall with a varnish, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a part um, incense like frankincense and myrrh and an oil of some kind, maybe beeswax. Um, so you do have garments that might have been impregnated with this kind of a sweet smelling substance. Mm-hmm. So yeah, oils but, and stuff. If you think about how but there's a, stains but, work. But have people found things purposefully stained in tomb contexts? No, right? There's a the one funerary cone found in Amarna that is mostly beeswax, right? And then on the guy's head, um, pretty cool find. But then the the all of this garment staining that you see in tombs on the regular, you don't I haven't ever seen uncovered in a tomb context, which is I, really interesting. I feel like they would have kept the I mean, obviously like oil being a major oil or fats perfumed um major tomb contribution good to good but i think they would have been kept separate for the afterlife yeah but yeah. not that i know i mean you have like stained linen but it's is it the mummy goo usually or whatever yeah resinous from the wrappings or things like this yeah 
And, and given how hard it is to weave one of these garments, to mm. stain it purposefully like that is such a, a marker of conspicuous consumption and yep. purposeful waste. It's it's a pretty extraordinary flex mm-hmm. um, socially. Yeah, because so. would you have worn that again if it got a little rancid or funky or something? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Good, good question, Abigail. Thank you for that. Um, next, we have Mike. Um, being with it, be, with it being October, what are your thoughts on the portrayal of mummies in pop culture, specifically during Halloween? Are there different parts of this topic you would like to see researched more? Good question. Well, that's, that's a really fun question. I mean, mummies are another social flex, aren't they? And mm-hmm. it, it's a way of showing society that your body will not decay and decompose and will remain permanently connected to this world physically um, while somebody else's might, you know, decompose and go someplace else, that you'll retain your features, you'll retain your body. Um, And the wrappings, some of them painted pink, some of them, you know, with protective spells on them. Mm -hmm. Um, The wrappings provide that barrier. And then the shroud on top, that red pink shroud is like, don't mess with this mummy. It's a it's um, a special thing. It's a saint. It's like um, yeah, a sacred body in some ways. The, the manufacturing of a of a sacred body of an effigy out of human flesh and bone and skin. Um, now, is it appropriate at Halloween to show these things? I mean, I, I've I've spoken on this um, topic before, saying that if elites are going to put that much visible display of of um, resources being used for their own personal preservation. And then, you know, what do they expect? (laughs) What did you think was going to happen? Um, People will then turn this into other cultural tropes. In the ancient world, it would be like, you know, there's an ancestor who can be connected to this world for for a long time compared Mm -hmm. to somebody else, Um, gives a, a permanent power connection like a conduit between the world of the living and the world of the dead but for us where we're not connecting to these ancestors anymore we don't remember their names we're not like you know praying to to any of these ancestors it becomes something more frightening more separate Mm -hmm. and we don't associate it with a marxist elite flex (laughs) or an elite flex in a marxist sense right we we just think of it as something that's like a dead body that's around too long that's kind of freaking scary uh-huh. and it becomes part of that halloween discussion when the veils are thin between the two sides uh-huh. this world and the next and i think it's perfectly fitting it's all about the dead remaining in this world and in this case when they go to a museum or another place it's like the dead remaining in this world longer than they should be uh-huh. or in places that aren't appropriate um yeah yeah but I think it's funny, too, that there's an idea of like haunting or that the mummy's revenge, the mummy's curse, right? That we, the living, did something to them that they are then needing to enact revenge. Like we stole, we looted their tomb or so it's almost there's a amount of anxiety that like we did something bad to them that we know we shouldn't have done. And the mummy then has to become reanimated to enact its revenge upon us. And so it's funny it's like the after effects of like colonialism right that like we raided all these tombs we looted all these mummies we unwrapped them and now within like the western conscience we have this fear of reprisal and that the mummy that we inherently think the mummy should take revenge upon us and that we you know we stole something from it or that it should curse us the whole you know tomb 
looting these tombs. Um, I love that. It's a so cultural it's, memory of colonial yeah. guilt, of things that we know that we've somehow done wrong. And, mm-hmm. and this is a way that we can enact it and work it out in a sense. I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, and yeah. a good, go haunt of mummies. Good, good for you. <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, and one final thing I'll say, and you can go to the next question, is there's a wonderful letter to the dead written to a woman named Ichi. Mm-hmm. And the letter to the dead is not addressed to her or even her mummy. It's addressed to her coffin. So there is this mm-hmm. Egyptian idea that you need an effigy that is physical that you could, so you can communicate with the spirit. Mm-hmm. And you can't communicate with the spirit unless you have a physical place to touch. And the mummy can provide that as well. And I think we humans somehow know that just intuitively that keeping a body around means somehow potentially keeping the spirit and the presence of the dead individual around too. And where have you kept it? How have you kept it? And mm-hmm. that just makes that you, as you say, it creates an anxiety. No. Yeah. Go watch. Uh, though I, we do always endorse the Brendan Fraser mummy classic. Yeah, I love it. And you love know it. what else I was thinking of when you were talking about colonial guilt? is Young Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant film um, of mm-hmm. my generation, a Gen X sort of film. And there are the three Egyptian princesses whose graves were um, despoiled by the Europeans. And then there's all this revenge to, to claim three Egyptian princesses. Um, and I, I think that's a perfect yeah. um, discussion of that. And that movie's like 30 years old, oh, right? I like that. I love that movie. It's, a, it's great, but it is about a revenge. Mm-hmm. Of, you've mistreated the Egyptians. Yes. And here's what you get from mistreating the Egyptians. Yeah. yeah, it's different than like vampires or something like that, right? Like the mummy's yeah. always seeking revenge or because you took its jewelry or you looted its tomb or you did something to it. It's never yeah. just like being a monster to be a monster. He is a he is a modus operandi. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good question. Okay. Uh, Noir88 asked, oh, this one's good. I don't, I don't know if we can, maybe we'll have to think about how we want to answer this. What was your ooh, most, ooh. <laughs> what was your most heated argument with another Egyptologist or with someone from the public? They want to hear from me and Amber as well. Oh my God. Well, who wants to start? Um, I haven't prepared. I'm flying blind. Um, there's so many. I think the public <laughs> you could probably speak to, like, facing off against conservatives, weirdos. So no offense to conservatives. Yeah. Well, I mean, for that one, you can look at an article I published in Sapiens uh, regarding my latest book, The Good Kings, mm-hmm. and um, and a real uh, support on the other side of authoritarianism. And... Um, and a kind of prosperity gospel of the elite. And it was an elite white man who was challenging me, but he wasn't an Egyptologist. But for um, the public, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, uh, the big argument I have to think of, you guys go first and then I'll, I'm trying I'll to see think what too. comes up for me. I mean, I, I'm such a junior scholar. I almost, I, can, I guess could nicely say I've never been in a big argument with an Egyptologist. I remember that one time I presented at ACE, I'm not, we're not going to name names because we're obviously not going to go there. But I remember the first time I presented at a major conference, a very prominent, um, not Egypt. I know exactly where you're going. You know, because you were there. Yeah, I know um, exactly. Questioned I was there. my dating of an object and I had to respond um, in that large setting with, you know, a big audience and stuff. But 
I wasn't that thrown off by it because that wasn't really the hinge of my argument. And I was just basing it off someone else's work. So I was like, I'm just following this other dude's work. I'm not, you know, here to debate the chronology of things or whatever. So it was fine, but it definitely threw me through a loop um, for a hot second. So I was like, Ugh. Um, but I wouldn't say it was a debate. You know, with the public, we always deal with people or even like teaching with students, you know, had many a student, again, these aren't debates because I don't think that's the right way of when I engage in these situations, like people asking about aliens or, you know, did slaves build the pyramids and stuff like that. I try to take it as like a teaching moment and I'm not going to sit there and be like, no, you're stupid, like this or that. But um, I've never gotten like a heated argument because, yeah, I feel like that's not how I would engage with things, but Amber, and, I don't and know if, nor have yeah. I, nor have I. And I know what I'm going to say now, but Amber, you first. Okay, so Amber, I when you were uh, touring the, giving tours to the public at the Getty and stuff or Art Muse, oh, did you ever come across? Certainly. Yeah, LACMA and the Getty. Uh, like you say, you always encounter members of the public that occasionally want to push back. I feel also, if you're a woman in the galleries yeah. with a group of people, especially, I mean, when I did it, I was younger. And so you know, young and blonde and female, and that was not working in my favor at all. Um, as far as some of these older, it's older, always older white men. It's always um, older men. Yeah. Uh, their so, cheese is moving and they don't yes. know what to do. But generally speaking, I don't have heated arguments with uh, Egyptologists unless you count my husband. <laughs> oh my God. So diplomatically said. Uh, um, yes, yes. <laughs> Okay, so the biggest throwdown I have ever been in, and, and it was very public, so I will name names in this one, um, was I was in Lisboa, Lisbon, Portugal, mm -hmm. and, I was, and I gave a paper on coffin reuse and coffin reuse in the Babel Gazu's cache in particular and talked about how incredibly incestuous, I, I use that word just kind of a to, to really hit the point home that they were reusing the coffins again and again and again. And there was gender modification. So if a guy died and they expected a woman or whatever, that was the coffin set they owned in the family, they would change the gender to fit the person who had died. There were blank name spaces that were ostensibly, that were varnished over, that were ostensibly filled in with paint over the varnish. Just a tremendous amount of reuse. And the Babel Gazus cash is... Um, it's if hundreds of coffins are, are in there and they have been used by a very well-known and prestigious, important Egyptologist named Andrei Deminsky, Polish, based in Warsaw, now um, Professor Emeritus. And he has used this to create his seminal work, 21st Dynasty Theban Coffins. I think that's the exact title. I, I have to check. Mm -hmm. um, and used that, uh, the Babel Gazu's cash to create a very complex dating schema, a typology, if you will, that goes from one style of decoration on a lid or a case or the interior to another style, and that this changes in time through time. And that they're, you know, in the early 20th, and it is for all yellow coffins. So, you know, from the 20th dynasty to the early 21st, the mid-21st, the, you know, that you get all of these different styles. And Navinsky is very granular in his typology and he dates things sometimes to a particular high priest of Amun, sometimes to a particular king and is very um, precise about his dating. And I was on stage and I was presenting the Babel Gazus material and saying that there's all this reuse, so much reuse, some reuse here, reuse there. And I said, it, it, 
speaks to me that we need to rethink some of our the, of our dating schema and that it has upset some of the typologies. And I use the word upset. And then after this conference, I got an open letter addressed to 299 other people or so that, that was a throwdown claiming that I had tried to impugn his honor or was, was calling him out, had slapped him across the face with the white glove or whatever it was. Um, and it was a, you know, a nice page and a half letter of wow. how I, w- I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong. And the decoration is the latest thing you put on a piece. And so since the decoration is the latest thing you put on a piece, then, you know, it can be dated that granularly. And, um, and you know, without, without dealing with the fact that sometimes you get an older collar and then a newer lower body painted on, and you can actually see it. And it, it can be examine that you have different levels of painting stratigraphy on a particular coffin. And that my argument was there is a melange of decorative styles rather than a coffin always having one style. A case could have an older decoration than a lid, for mm-hmm. example, and, and an interior might have an older decoration or a later decoration and, and so on and so forth. And that I was just saying it was very complicated and we need to rethink these things. So this, this open letter went on and, um, and I thought, well, what do I do? You know, how do I, how do I deal with this open letter? And, and in typical form for me, I think, I, I didn't. I just thought, I'm going to let this stand. I'm going to let him have the last word. I'm going to let him put his open letter out there. And I'm not going to respond. And I think that, and, and then at the next conference, there was a, a coffins conference, the second Vatican conference conference, and Andre and I sat down and he said, so let's bury the hatchet. And I said, sure. <laughs> um, but but I, I, I didn't ever want to pull out a hatchet. I just want to work with the scientific data. I just want to ask what the data can show us and, and where we're moving to, what directions and how things work. Um, I, I don't think I was trying to make it about um, one scholar being right, another scholar being wrong. Mm-hmm. And I try to correct my own work all the time. But this has since become, and I think because I didn't write back and apologize, which is what was expected from me as the junior scholar and from him as the senior scholar, it was expected, I think, from the academy at large that I write back and say, I am so sorry, Professor Nabinsky, that you felt slighted in any way and I didn't mean that. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I didn't because I was pissed off that somebody would come at me when that wasn't my intention at all. And, and I didn't feel that I necessarily needed to apologize. That has harmed me in my political dealings with many institutions, um, particularly in Europe. Mm. And, um, and that's something I have to deal with and continue to deal with. Um, and, and it's, um, it's the kind of thing that happens in, in the field. And I'll continue to speak out and be very polite and very uh, matter of fact about what the data is and not make things emotional and about one person being right or wrong um, and actually not engage in the battle mm-hmm. that was presented to me. But, um, but it was interesting to see how, how shocked people were that I didn't respond and apologize for what I had said. Um, <laughs> because I, I also knew if I wrote back, it would have become bigger because I wouldn't have apologized. I would have said, mm-hmm. that's not what I meant. That's not how I put it. We do need to rethink the granularity of these typologies. And, and then it would have blown up bigger. So I, I didn't have any choices available to me if I wanted to hold my scholarly ground 
and my own um, authentic voice for what I thought was correct in this in this space. So it was it really somebody put me into a very difficult spot, and I had to like stop and go, "What do I do? What yeah. do I do? Just what is one not to engage? To do? Yeah, yeah." And and choosing not to engage is an action. Is a choice. And it does yeah. have it has also. consequences, and those consequences were very real. And there's still people in the academy who will not speak to me because of this. Like, will turn their backs on me and not speak to me. I'm like, whoa, okay, because I have because I did this or didn't do this or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some people want to perceive you as being, and people want an, the debate yeah. and the argument and the drama and. Or they just want you to be the bad guy. And mm-hmm. if they really think, oh, now we have the evidence for you being the bad guy, then they're going to they're sure. take yeah. it and then start telling everyone, oh, my God, but she's a bad person or whatever it is. And, um, and you, I also learned in that moment as a junior scholar, and this is probably 10 years ago now, or oh, maybe not quite, 2015, I think. Um, but I learned that you can't get everyone to like you. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're here to do. But for a woman... A woman's power in the academy is in large part getting people to like you. Whereas mm-hmm. a man's is like throw down and flex and here's my big idea. And I don't need you to like me. And that aggress that aggressivity is mm-hmm. rewarded. For a woman, you have to be more charming and you have to be more diplomatic. And it's a different space. Now, since I'm six one and a half, maybe I'm going to inhabit this space a little bit differently. Or maybe I feel like some of these binaries need to be overthrown in the academic world that we find ourselves in now. But it was, it, it was an interesting place. And so now I try to float above the patriarchal pissing contest, but it's still there. It's still there as a part of my, my um, coffins world. And, um, and it's, um, and I can't believe I've just shared it on the podcast for all to hear, but 299 people plus already know about it. So it's not yeah. like this is, this is information that, that people haven't heard. And it's, I suppose, always good to give one side of the story rather than being proudly silent on mm-hmm. these things forever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I, it was a learning moment for you too. And it's always hard as junior scholars how to deal with these um, more established people well as as when a junior female scholar is dealing Mm -hmm. with a senior male scholar who's coming at you and you're like oh my god Mm -hmm. um that's particularly difficult yeah and um i think it it was shocking for many people because i'm american yeah coming from a different system that does not have to be as obsequious to the senior scholars in the field because they do not in my system have as much control over my destiny. Yep. Whereas in Europe, they do. And the apology was expected. This mm-hmm. was a flex on his part. He expected the apology. He didn't get it. And then went off and found other ways to impugn my my character, which is, you know, go for it. But um, but it's an interesting, mm-hmm. interesting place to find yourself in. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, good stories. There's always there's always drama. And being such a relatively small field. You know, there's always these things happening. Yeah. And there's a winning. There's a winning in this stuff. Just put your books out and do your best work and, yeah. and try to be and a good engage. person. That's all. That's all you can do. Try to engage be a good person. And constructively, stuff. right? Yeah. Like I was in my head, I was thinking like the most, not heated, but the most arguments I have are with my friends or like when we have grad seminars or stuff like this, because it's like, I know I'm in a safe space. We all love and support each other. And so we have, amongst our friends and colleagues, we have the most arguments because I feel like we know 
we can debate and it's no one's going to like take it to the next level of like calling names or anything like that. And we can have a debate and have differing opinions. And it's like, okay. I mean, let me say the most the most heated arguments or passionate disagreements Mm -hmm. are not necessarily the most important disagreements you will have in your career. Usually those most important disagreements are much more quiet, like Mm -hmm. much more um, and you have to be much more strategic. But if if we're talking, Jordan, and we should answer this other part of the question, I suppose, about the things that we most passionately disagree with, I would say things like whether there's a tomb behind Tutankhamun's mm-hmm. tomb. That's a big one. Whether sacrificial burial actually happened in the first time is because yes. now people are pushing against this. Yeah. Um, whether or not female kings actually had the power that we say they had, or whether this is a this is too positivist uh, a perspective. Um, there's a there's a lot dating is always chronology even though that to me is like the most boring thing ever but like people will write articles back and forth responding to each other about like stupid chronology and and i have seen senior professors scream at more junior female professors over exactly that chronology that's not my story to tell so i'll leave those names unspoken but maybe people can figure that out if they know (laughs) if they know if you know you know but those kinds of things i mean it does get super heated and um and then race, ethnicity, identity. Yes. Who's who owns Egypt? I can't think of anything that creates more drama. However, Egyptologists and nubiologists, Egyptologists tend to shy away from this subject and not answer it directly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's to our detriment, but mm-hmm. it, because it's such an interesting topic. But wow, does it make people lose their minds? Yeah. Anything you think are hot topics right now? If we apply it to Egypt, those are still hot topics. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So we're in our, our final question. Um, but it, there's a bit of a, it's a multi-parter. So I'll start um, slower. So this is from Paul, who you might, we have featured on Substacks in the past. Um, a craftsman, a woodworker has been doing some experimental archaeology as well. So really cool, really cool work. Um, amazing woodworker yeah amazing so happy to get in touch um with him again and he has a question about he was looking at some stuff from the museo Egizio di torino and looking at some of cause stuff and he was wondering if we could have a look at the inscription which i shared in the chat uh kara if you want to have a look at the image it's on the last page um and tell me me if it was applied before or after death and he says the gist i've got is that its cause name, work position, and a signifier of either his social standing in life or him having been justified in the sense of judgment after death. Um, so he was, and he's looking at a bunch of other stools and he found other examples of similar ratings, you know, variation and titles or uh, like for the cause of blah, 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 blah. But I, I guess wondering of um, maybe this speaks to, you know, whether this furniture was meant to be actually used in 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 life or whether these were just tomb goods and so does the inscription help us at all and so first we'll put the image on when we post this episode on the Substack. i'm looking at it right now and amber just sent me that it's a stool she mm-hmm. sent me what the object is because i didn't have that oh yeah, yeah okay so- nice little stool um i mean the stool looks like something you would absolutely use in daily life with and it has use for patterns from what i can see so and where it is seems very much like a label that you would put on 
right before you put it into the tomb mm-hmm. to me. Um, and and the fact that it goes over these use-wear patterns and doesn't. I mean, the Ma'af hero in the first image does seem to be a bit denuded, but maybe because they're, they've kind of run out of ink, not, ne- not necessarily for any other reason, but there does seem to be a little bit of plaster over that Heru sign. So, you know, maybe so much furniture or all the furniture that we have from ancient Egypt is from funerary context. Mm-hmm. So to say definitively that it did not have people's names on it until they put it in the tomb, I don't know if I can do that. Maybe he's part of a village council at Kenbed, a council of elders, and this is the stool that he used in that council. Uh, and and it has his name on it. And I I I don't know. The second one looks much more it's crisper. perfect and very crisp, very fresh, doesn't have any plaster going over it. Um looks like it could easily have been inscribed, you know, mm-hmm. at the moment it was put in the tomb. And the text reads, um, overseer of works. The power. Uh, the gr- overseer of great works, sorry, because mm-hmm. it's Kaud Aa, right? And then it's Hai. Um, so his name, mm-hmm. the one who rises, the one who appears in glory. And then in one inscription, you have a Ma'aheru, true voice, which is something traditionally only seen when you're dead, but not necessarily, mm-hmm. but not necessarily right? It just means you speak truth. And then the other one is, is um, Wechem Ankh, yeah. repeating life that you will get to live again. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them seem funerary as epithets yeah. after the name of the dead. But, um, you know, someone should do some work on that first one and see if they can prove that the name was there uh, and that there's use for patterns over. It'd be kind of cool to know that, you know, he had a stool that he brought with him to work or mm-hmm. that he brought with him to the the community discussions and and then sat on it or or held on to it or something. And that, it, you know, that it was a part of his his life in mm-hmm. that way. But it's definitely a daily life object. I mean, what do you think? Well, so the the other question that Paul had was that the linen in costume also have his name on them, like a monogram. And so in summation, they ask, do the inscriptions on the funeral serve as name label tags in like postmortem? Like, why are there his name on those? But that the presumed uh, understanding of the linen marks was that they were put on the linen so that when they were sent out for laundry, exactly, um, it could be returned to Ka so that, you know, know who everyone's stuff was. Um, so like right. a name tag. But right. why would you need to add um, his name you know, justified his titles on his all his stools or his other accoutrement. I mean, for the laundry, you could solve this, Jordan, because, you know, if linen doesn't take a dye very easily and you're writing on something in a carbon black, it's not going to stay there once you've done the laundry with the natron. I don't think it is. I think that we have this assumption that the name was put on the linen and it's meant to be there for the laundry because it's something we do, right? Kid goes to camp, you put in the little tags or whatever, you put his name on the tags. And then they're supposed to get their, I mean, whatever. But but I don't think it would work, actually, for linen. I don't think it's going to stay on there after a, a real natron washing. Um, so though I, I sometimes see the point, they use a um, like a metallic red because it's eaten through the right? linen, and we were right. left with just kind of the old outline. Um, and then there's the idea that linen garments were often woven with a blue or a red pattern on a selvage edge or a fringe edge, and that it's 
it's meant to be belong. It's meant to, to belong to a certain family, mm-hmm. um, this, this marker. And so everyone knows, oh, these go to this family and those go mm-hmm. to that family. Um, and so some there, of Ka's are embroidered. Some of his linen marks, if his name yeah, is embroidered, exactly. it's a hieratic embroidery and not ink. So then you don't have to worry about it washing off. Then. Exactly. An embroidered one's going to stay. It's not going to come out, even if it's mm-hmm. the same color or like a slightly it off is, yeah. color flax, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is most of what that embroidery is. So I, I think drawing on the linen, anytime you write on the linen with a carbon black or a red ochre or something, that it is there to market for a funerary purpose. Mm-hmm. So for the linen, in some ways, because of laundry and cleaning things, I'm like, oh, you can make an easier case for that. Mm-hmm. The furniture, you're going to have to look at useful wear patterns and then decide, you know, how, how this is going to work. Um, is it something inscribed right before death? I would say I'm not sure. I'm kind of 50-50 on it. And looking at the two inscriptions you sent me from this stool, I would say one looks like it may have been inscribed before death and may have been used with that name on it. And the other one with the Wesham Ankh was inscribed right before death. That's my gut feeling, but I, I'd have to lay out my evidence for it. Yeah. But in both regards, it's a discussion of ownership, right? So in, in life, it's to say this is caused stool you know, return to finder if it's lost or don't steal it. My name's on it. And presumably similar for um, in the afterlife as well, right? Like don't steal the stool, it's cause, you know, make sure it's in the right spot doing what it's supposed to be doing. So still ultimately about ownership and letting everyone know whose stool it was. Yeah, I totally Um, agree with you that there there's... um... This idea of, I mean, just just a weird thing that you need a stool in your tomb at all, right? Well, and multiple you need a bed, stools. multiple stools, bed, scribal palette, wigs, unguents, all of this daily life stuff, and that you put your name on all of it so that when you ostensibly, the belief mm-hmm. is that when you get to the afterlife and you need these comforts, then your spirit will know which ones are yours, mm-hmm. and you'll be able to go to them and say, "Oh, that's my bed. I'm going to lay down for a nap." Oh my god, yep. <laughs> or that's my garment. I'm going to put on my mm-hmm. clothing. It belongs to me. And so you're not taking someone else's clothing and there's rules of the afterlife as well as there are rules of this life. Um, So that's, but ownership, certainly. And if a mummy can't really be marked, what are you going to do? Draw on the mummy on the Mm -hmm. skin of it or something? You don't. You mark the linen that goes Mm -hmm. around the mummy. You mark the coffin that the mummy is put in. You mark the furniture that that surround that mummy. And this is all part of that assemblage mm-hmm. that the spirit can then go back to the tomb and rest in. And again, the dead don't bury themselves. And burial of the dead, it is about transitioning the dead to the next life. But when you're including, and, and the furniture and all of that, I think giving them that stuff is, is giving them comfort in the next life. Here's a place to sit. Here's a place to rest. Here's a place to be comfortable. Here's, here's beautiful things to wear. Here's Mm -hmm. a wig. So you feel fancy. So you have all of those things, but also it's a way for the living to be like, don't forget us here. We're the ones giving you the stuff. Come Mm -hmm. back to us so that we can connect with you. So you can be our conduit to the space after we need to keep you a little bit here. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, it's very much a two-way street in how these objects work. Um, It's an ownership, but it's also like, it's kind of like a little, like a lure that mm-hmm. the living leave to get the dead to come back to them in a physicalized manner. Mm-hmm. Strangely. Yeah, I like that. These were all really great questions. Um, 
I had fun. I hope everyone enjoyed fun. listening to them. And as always, for next month, if you have a question, feel free to send it in to our Discord, to our Patreon, or via our Substack as well. So um, through our email. Any other last minute things? If you're not following the Substack, please do. That's where we're we're solely using that now. So if you're listening to this, you know, through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anything like that, make sure you check out the Substack. We're doing a lot of fun writing on the Substack, and and I have one document going right now. Amber's like, when are you going to finish it? About history um, being apolitical because yep. that podcast did really well, and and so I thought, well, I, I may have some more things to say, yep. and maybe we can. We can put that in print too, because not everyone's a, a podcaster, right? Some people like things in print as well. Um, and, and I guess you can even use things in print in a different way than you can use a podcast. So um, for our listeners and our, our consumers, <laughs> and I don't mean that you have to pay, I mean, consumer of information. <laughs> so yeah. And speaking of those who do support us, big shout out, big thank you. Um, you know, super big thank you. do this without you. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hugely important. This is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.